Welcome to the Fitness and Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Danny Kennedy, and I'm here to help you become the very best version of yourself. What's up, guys? Welcome back to this week's episode of the Fitness and Lifestyle Podcast. Today, I am joined by a very special guest. Now, for those of you who don't know, um, I am a massive fan of basketball. It played such a big role in my life. Um, you know, moving from country town in Horsham to Melbourne to play basketball, and um, I still love it to this day. It's, it's an incredible sport. I watch the NBA every week. I love watching the NBL. Um, very fortunate to have mates that are currently playing in the NBL, so I, I get down to as many games as I can. And today I am joined by the commissioner of the NBL, Jeremy Loliger. And we dive into some some really cool stuff, you know, chatting about how the league's gone from being almost non-existent to rising in popularity like it is today. You know, the Next Stars program with guys like LaMelo Ball coming to play in Australia, um, where the league's, you know, hoping to, to move towards in the next few years, a bunch of different stuff, and it was just a fantastic chat. So if you enjoy the episode, please do take a screenshot, post on your Instagram story, tag myself, tag the NBL, tag Jeremy. I'll have all those links in the show notes below. Um, but you guys are going to love this chat, so let's get stuck into the episode. And welcome, Jeremy. Jeremy, welcome to the Fitness and Lifestyle Podcast, mate. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. No, thanks for having me, Danny. It's uh, great to be here. Really excited for this one, mate. Um, for those listening, everyone will know how much of a basketball fan I am. Um, and it'll just be really cool to get some insight into what's happening with the league, you know, the, the progress that's been made over the last few years in particular already. And, and I guess give the, the fans something, um, some excitement to look forward to in, in the future, I would, I would imagine. But before we get stuck into that, uh, the basketball side of things, mate, I'd love to, for you to kind of give us a bit of a rundown on your background pre um, NBL days, just so the listener has a, an idea of kind of what background you've come from and, and how you've eventually ended up um, with the NBL. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I was a really average basketballer back in the day. I played rep basketball uh, up until I was maybe 16, 17 years of age, so I think up to under 20s. Um, it, was, it was something that um, happened to coincide with, I guess, the previous golden era of the NBL. Yeah. Uh, and also the the Michael Jordan days. I see you got the picture there behind you. He, he was always my yeah. hero growing up as well. And um, uh, you know, you, going through school at that time, you, you it didn't matter what other sport you played, you tended to play basketball as well. And so mm. that was um, was what first triggered my love for the sport. But much like others around the country, uh, I lost my engagement with the sport at about that time. And, and yeah. the NBL and basketball generally here went through a bit of uh, turmoil for 10, 15 year period. And during that time, I went off and was primarily concentrated on my academics. Uh, I, I went and became a, a lawyer. I did commerce and law degrees. Um, I went and studied overseas for a bit as well. Um, and came back and really focused on on my career as a corporate and commercial lawyer. Yep. Um, I was doing completely non-sport related stuff for the vast majority of my career. Um, mergers and acquisitions, energy um, resources, oil and gas, public transport, you name it, um, pretty, pretty dry stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it, that's what paid the bills. Um, but ultimately, uh, uh, when I became a, a partner, I tried to transition my practice into something that I was a little bit more interested in and comfortable with and taking all of those skills from primary 
um, resources, but into something that I felt was a little bit more sustainable. So I was doing a lot in agribusiness, um, dairy and red meat proteins. That led into a, a significant um, cross-border practice, particularly with China. Okay. Um, which, which is pertinent to sort of where I am now, and I'll come back to it in a minute. Um, at the same time, uh, started up a fledgling sports law practice, um, which took off pretty quickly. We landed some cool clients in the sporting space, combination of players associations, leagues, athletes. You know, between various de- departments of the firm, we, we had a number of bases covered, and um, the two started to intersect. And in trying to do deals with Chinese businessmen, for example, or even large Chinese corporations about dairy farms or food sales or whatever it was, uh, I I found that we kept coming back to talking about basketball. Um, It was this great tool of, of, you know, what you call soft diplomacy and Mm. managed to open doors up. And before I knew it, I was going to basketball games in China and I was inviting um, Chinese businessmen to come to basketball games in Australia. <laughs> and even where you don't have a really strong connection in terms of the language that you speak, this was kind of the, the common denominator that you could both get excited could about. Both connect, yeah. Yeah, right. And that, that's where I sort of fell in love with the concept of sports diplomacy, which has become a really big catchphrase these days. But that's when it struck true to me that, that it, there was some merit in it. And around the same time, a client of mine by the name of Larry Kesselman um, who at that stage was primarily in, um, well, the stuff that we were doing was in venture capital and uh, he, he uh, became introduced to me by the CEO of the then Melbourne Tigers while they were transitioning yep. to uh, Melbourne United. United, yep. Yeah, we were doing a little bit of work around the rebranding of Melbourne United and came to pass subsequently that Larry and I ended up having a conversation about an opportunity that had come to him to acquire a majority interest in the league. And uh, we, we compared notes and decided that putting together our collective knowledge that, hey, it could be a good idea. This is something where you could really take a, a product that was failing fast to the next level. Um, well, to a level to bring it yeah. back up to an yeah, ideal. Yeah. And, and, um, uh, he basically said, well, if you want to help me with the acquisition, you've got the job, provided that you come and work for me once it's done. And, uh, and that's you know, six years ago where we were. And um, a lot has transpired in the six years since, but it brings us to where we are today. Definitely. That's, um, that's awesome. And so when you, when you first stepped into that position, um, you know, obviously, the, as you mentioned before, the league went through a stage there where it had dropped right off there i'm assuming like the the viewership and stuff was was extremely low um and mm-hmm. you know even the the diehard you know as i said I, I grew up playing basketball moved to melbourne for basketball and like the diehard basketball fan here really had i'm not going to say no interest but very minimal interest in the nbl and it was really hard to get involved in in following along with it because there was just nothing to to get excited about or there wasn't much hype around it at all whereas you know you look at it now and I think most people can agree it's the complete opposite so when you stepped in like what's the the process there is it sitting down and brainstorming you know this is what's clearly not working this is where we'd like to be now let's reverse engineer what we're going to do to get there and is it a matter of making sure that the standard of the basketball 
is obviously much higher and then how much i guess focus goes into the the experience of the of the viewer and the fan as well being at the games and you know like we go to a, a game here in melbourne now and it's it's awesome like it's a great experience much different than what it used to be so yeah what did that kind of yeah. process look like there's a lot in that um, uh, and <laughs> big, big just question. cut me off with other questions and, and interject if I'm going off on a tangent. But um, I, I think the first point is it had sunk to a low where um, no one cared how we put it back together as long as we brought it back. Mm-hmm. And you, t- you talked about the fact that people didn't know how to get involved with the NBL. Well, when we took over, there was no TV deal in place. Uh, that was the first critical thing was you need to give something oxygen to be able to catch fire. And the oxygen for any sporting code is that people need to be able to watch it. Watch it. Uh, yeah. you, you can't be passionate about something that you cannot watch um, programmatically, that you know every game is going to be on. How do you get emotionally connected to a team that you can't see play mm. other than when they happen to be playing home games? Um, so I think the central tenant of all of our decision-making was we have to put the, the fan at the center of every decision that we make. Yep. And we had big, bold aspirations for the, for the league in terms of what it could be 10 years from, from now. So from that starting point, but we were never going to be a chance of realizing any of those aspirations until we fix the domestic product and fundamentally changing the view of the rusted on basketball fan. Mm-hmm. We had more. We had more knockers than followers. You know, people who were yeah. diehard NBL fans had grown to hate the league because it was such a disappointing product. Mm-hmm. Um, so, look, when we took over, we had one sponsor uh, for forty grand. We had no TV deal, um, and uh, we had a hundred days before we threw the ball up in the air for the first game of the the two thousand fifteen sixteen season. Yeah, right. And what we decided to do was first and foremost had to get back on TV. So we, we went and cut a deal with, um, at the time it was Fox Sports and, and Channel 9. Mm-hmm. And we were able to say for the first time in a very long time that every game was going to be available and live, uh, available on TV and live. And I think that was the first time in NBL history that every game was being broadcast live. Live, yeah. Um, that then gave us a product that we could go and take to sponsors uh, previously, we were just selling a promise that, hey, we're not asking you to commit a huge amount financially, dip your toe, um, and we've got more skin in the game than you at the moment in terms of our own reputation. So we've got yeah. aligned interests, trust in us, and in year two, we'll come back and ask for you to write a bigger check because we're going to hit it out of the park in year one. But really, until we had a TV product, all we were selling was a, was a promise. Yeah. Um, so that TV deal was was the fundamental point that gave us some momentum on the back of which we could actually build a business. Um, Then it was all about increasing the entertainment value of a family friendly product. We knew that Australians loved basketball. Um, It it has always been a very, very highly participated sport. It's the second highest participated team sport in the country. Um, We knew that there was a successful business model out there because we had a big brother in the NBA and they'd shown us that you could go from the brink of insolvency to huge success in not too much time, provided that you had the capital and the patience to make it happen. And we knew we had a massive untapped market in Asia um, and, and subsequently in North America who wanted more of the product at a really high level. And we knew that the basketball product itself, just the core basketball on court, 
was at probably a much higher standard than most other countries with a similar kind of budget. Yeah. And so that if we could put the budget on steroids a little bit and give something to the players that they could feel proud of, uh, create a league where the best Australian players who were, who were playing in Europe would actually come home and play here by choice instead and we could yeah. attract better imports, well, the rest of it would start to take care of itself. Yeah. So those, those were the central tenets of our decision-making. Um, ultimately, it came down to the fact that revenue is a product of reach and relevance. Yeah. We needed, to, we needed to increase our reach and get to a broader audience. And that started with, well, let's try and get out to all Australians by putting the product live on TV. Um, secondly, let's increase the relevance by actually making it more entertaining for more people. So mm. that meant bringing in, um, well, subsequently it's gone on to mean things like bringing in some of our next stars, guys like LaMelo Ball, and try and introduce people to tune in for the first time, not just because this kid's a good basketballer, but because he's one of the, he's like, I think the headline at the time was the Kardashian of basketball. <laughs> yeah. There needed to be those, we needed to be storytellers. Yeah, yeah. It had to be as much about the entertainment and the storytelling and the show as it was about the basketball, the, the sport. Um, so yeah. that's, a, that's a long answer to a, a short that- question. Sorry. No, it's awesome. And uh, I, I relate massively with the, the storytelling side of things. I think regardless of what industry you're talking about, the storytelling sells or it always sells. The story is, is, uh, is what sells and what gets people intrigued. And I think something massively that has, has had to have bumped the viewership up and also created such a big buzz and excitement was you guys going to pre- play preseason games in the States. Talk me through how that opportunity kind of comes about. And is that something yeah. that you guys are looking to to keep on going and, and try and keep building that relationship? Because I mean, it's it's pretty epic to turn your TV on and and uh, and be watching the team that you go and watch on a Saturday night playing against some of your favorite NBA players and you know, know and, and some really good standard of basketball from both sides too, which is awesome to see. So yeah, and, uh, yeah. So how did that come about? And is that something that's going to be hanging around? Well, I, I know you're a Melbourne United fan. I've seen you sitting there courtside and. Uh, um, to see Melbourne United take on Oklahoma City and, and lose by a point in that game. Uh, in, in, you know, people were saying, yeah, but it was a throwaway game. They, they don't actually care about the result. I remember Russell Westbrook was, was getting teched up arguing with referees. He was that passionate about that game. It was Paul George's debut yeah. with the Thunder from memory. And he came out and played 25, 30 minutes. Like they were yeah. taking it seriously. And, and Melbourne United went toe to toe. And it was very, very cool. And it's the product of, uh, a huge investment in the relationship with the NBA because Australia has a great sense of healthy tall poppy syndrome in the sense that you've got to be the best in the world or we don't want to know about you. Yeah. From a sporting <laughs> point of view, that is. Because we've, yeah. been, we've been spoiled with these um, Indigenous sporting codes that are part of the fabric of our community, AFL, NRL, cricket, which isn't, which isn't specific to Australia, of course, but... It's, it's a Commonwealth sport and it's been there forever and a day. Basketball and football, soccer, they're the two world sports from a team point of view. Yeah. Um, soccer, we're still a long way from being anywhere near the, the top countries in the world. Basketball, mm-hmm. we're punching massively above our weight. Yeah. Um, we're ranked number three in the world. And that's something... To, to be proud of and not shy away from the comparison with the NBA. Let's celebrate the fact that on 
1% of their salary cap, we can fly to the other side of the world with three less players on the squad, play a game that is 25% longer than we're used to on a different size court against the very best players in the world and only go down by a point. That's huge. That's and amazing, we, should yeah. be, we should be proud of it. But first, before we were allowed to talk about ourselves in the same breath as speaking about the NBA, we needed the public buy-in. Yeah. We, needed, we needed the fans to not be knockers anymore and to give us, I call it social license, but to give us their permission to brag about ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Otherwise, you're just that uncool dad talking to his <laughs> kids about how cool you are. Um, first, first you need the kids to believe that you're actually cool and then you can, have, yeah. then you've got a bit of swagger, then you've got a bit of cred. So we, we had to knock the rust off here domestically first before we could legitimately talk about ourselves as one of the best basketball leagues in the world. And we had to prove to the NBA that we weren't fly by night, that clubs weren't falling over anymore, that we were here for the long term and that the basketball was of really high quality. We started off um, baby steps and brought um, basketball without borders, the NBA's sort of um, cultural and community program to Australia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they do that regionally in different continents. Basketball without borders, Asia had never been to Australia before. And so we said, well, come here and let us help you deliver that program and show you that we're the real deal. And that was really the catalyst then to being having, uh, to having conversations about, well, you know, we, we think we've got sufficient talent to be able to put up a really good show in the preseason. Are there any teams that need an opportunity where the, the scheduling for preseason is actually pretty chaotic over in the NBA? Everyone's trying fundamental, to... Yeah. Yeah. And so we said, well, look, is there an opportunity where someone needs some competition? And um, we were introduced to, to the GM of the Utah Jazz in the first instance. Um, okay. He said, yeah, we, we actually need a game. And we think the league's great. If you're willing to come over and make it work on these dates, and we're like, don't worry about the dates. We'll make, we'll yeah. make it work. Um, <laughs> and that, that started the ball rolling and it became a, an annual event. Then we've had, you know, as many as six preseason games a couple of years ago. And if it wasn't for COVID, we would have had, we would have had them in 2020 as well. So absolutely. It's something that we expect to go back to being a, an annual um, mm-hmm. event. Yep. We'll bend over backwards to make sure it happens. And I, I haven't heard anything from the NBA that would suggest otherwise. That's awesome. And then, you know, staying on the topic of the NBA, we, we briefly touched on the Next Stars program before. Did the did having guys like Lamelo and um, RJ over here, did it make like, did it have the impact that you were expecting to have and or did it surpass the impact that you expected it to have with guys with such big names and obviously now gone on to, to be putting up exceptional numbers in the NBA and then so clearly the, the guys on the SBN and, and in the States are going to continue to refer back to the fact that he's come over here and he's now playing yeah. against men and he's holding his own. So did that kind of surpass what you expected or was it, yeah, how did that, how did that did. kind of end up? Yeah, awesome. Yeah, it, it surpassed our expectations. I mean, we had pretty high expectations um, given that LaMelo Ball was coming to Australia with, I think he had five and a half million Instagram followers. So we knew it was going to be a big deal. <laughs> mm. um, but at the time he was ranked... I think 46 in his draft class. Yeah. Um, and within six weeks of, of playing in Australia, he was the number one ranked prospect in his draft class. And ultimately, as you said, drafted number three. Um, and number three, number two, number one, for me, it's all the same. It all came down to who had which pick. 
if yeah. Charlotte was yeah. if Charlotte was the, the number one pick, they would have taken him number one. I'm, I'm confident of that. Um, it, it surpassed our expectations, but at the same time, I wasn't surprised in terms of what they were able to deliver on court. I scouted them, watched them um, in workouts, um, but I, I think the the real wow moment was uh, a game where. Uh, Sydney played Illawarra in Sydney at Kudos Bank Arena. Over 17,000 people went along to that game, primarily to see <laughs> Lamello Ball yeah. and Andrew Bogut. Uh, yeah. And those, those two names were the two uh, players that have had the biggest impact on the NBL, not just in my time, but probably period. Um, Andrew Gaze and those guys obviously had this sustained, yeah. huge impact. But in terms of one sign at one point yeah, in yeah. time that all of a sudden had a massive impact, yeah, Bogut, and then the following year, Lamello Ball. And so we had over 17,000 people at Kudos Bank Arena. It broke the record for uh, attendance for a single NBL game. But just as, if not more importantly, we had over 2 million people tune in to watch that game live. <laughs> 2 million crazy. people, yeah, which is... Um, even more astounding because I say over 2 million, whatever the bit over 2 million was would have probably been Australian domestic viewers on, on TV, but the 2 million were watching on Facebook live out of the U S that for me was that, that tipping point where you went, right, we've really tapped onto something here that yeah. does have longevity and sustainability <laughs> provided that the next stars program can continue to attract the right people. Um, later that day, RJ Hampton played, I think it was in Perth with New Zealand Breakers, over a million viewers for that game as well. Um, the impact of the two of them, even a guy like Didi Lutzada, who's just been called up yeah. uh, by the New Orleans Pelicans, mm -hmm. part of our Next Stars program with the Sydney Kings. Not quite the same fanfare as a, a Lamello Ball or RJ Hampton, but massive impact in terms of the fact that anyone who follows basketball in Brazil now knows about the NBL. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We've got the same now in, in Japan. Everyone knows about the NBL because of Yudai Baba playing with, with Melbourne United. Um, and, it, you know, the, the um, prospect of continuing to recruit international players remains really attractive for that reason. Do you think there's uh, any kind of pressure, I guess? I mean, obviously, if you've got someone of these guys' caliber on your team, you're going to want to be given a minutes. But do you think there's pressure with these guys coming over? If you say you have a junior... A guy that's just finished up high school and elects to play NBL instead of going to college, there's a bit of added pressure for the coach to be playing in minutes every single week, and and that can potentially have, I guess, a negative effect on that team for the Absolutely. season just to play, just to give him minutes. Absolutely, it's a really tricky balancing <laughs> act of finding um, the right individual athlete, the right coach, the right roster where they're going to be able to play a role in order to get the exposure that they need to get drafted but at the same time, not putting them under too much pressure to perform um, that, that you actually are setting them up to fail. Mm. Uh, and at the same time, you've got a coach whose principal mandate is to win basketball games and they have a contract negotiation coming up at the end of the season and need that job. Yeah. It's a very, very fine balancing act. Um, you know, we're all learning as we go on this journey. And then there's a lot that's unpredictable as well. So, for example... Lamello Ball again at the Illawarra Hawks. We had the perfect formula there where Aaron Brooks uh, was a very experienced player, former NBA veteran, um, 
happened to have the same agency and Illawarra weren't just looking for a point guard, they were still looking for a, a shooting guard as well. And so the suggestion was put forward that, hey, if Lamello was to come there, we could actually help find the right shooting guard to take some of the pressure off him in the backcourt. <laughs> and that worked beautifully. Aaron Brooks as a mentor for Lamello Ball, it was a match made in heaven. That's um, and then, and then um, uh, Aaron did his, uh, um, not his ACL, he did his Achilles. Achilles, yeah. Six or seven games into the season. Yeah. And all of a sudden, all of the pressure got put back onto Lamello. All of a yep. sudden, he was not just a primary ball carrier, but he didn't have that pressure release valve and he didn't have his mentor any longer either. Mm. Um, and he shouldered an immense amount of pressure for the next seven or eight games. Um, and he yeah, did really, really well and, and went on to be scoring triple doubles and all the rest. So you, you never know. The unexpected at the time was a pretty dire situation for us and we were all really concerned for, for Lamello. Yeah. And then at the same time, the opportunity gave him um, or the circumstances gave him the opportunity to flourish. So you try and predict it as best you can. You try and balance it as best you can. And then there's always the, the unknown. Yeah. Do you think if the league doesn't have guys like, you know, say say uh, that season doesn't happen with Lamelo and, and RJ, do you think guys like Josh Giddy stay here and play NBL? Um, or do you think they take off? I think they probably take off. Yeah. Um, and case in point, the same year as, as I was um, trying to sign Lamelo and RJ, I would have loved to have signed Josh Green. I would have loved for him to have come through mm-hmm. the Next Stars program and, and spent some time in Australia <laughs> Yeah. Um, before going off to be an NBA superstar. Um, but ultimately, you know, at the time, he would have still been questioning whether or not this was the best route for him to yeah. find himself in the first round of the draft. Um, and I absolutely don't begrudge him the decision. If he was a year younger and making the decision now, I would be really hopeful that he would, that he would Different stay story. correct. And I yeah. think it made the, deci- the decision for Josh Giddy and Harvey King uh, a lot simpler. I'm yeah. hoping that there'll be plenty of other Aussies that, that now follow their path. And interestingly, the feedback that I've had from NBA clubs, from journalists in the US, from GMs in the US, they're all saying, well, if you're a young Australian and you're planning on being a one and done college guy, well, why would you undergo the upheaval of coming to college when the NBL arguably prepares you better for the NBA than, than college ever could? Because mm. you're playing against men and you're transitioning into a system that's much more like uh, professional team trans- yeah, yeah exactly instead of playing against other kids your age who everyone yeah. already knows you're going to dominate yeah uh, I, a few more things I want to touch on I respectful of your time um, now this this is really frustrating it's got I've been trying to think of this thing for like the last 10 minutes I can't remember the name of of the uh, the the tournament that we had just recently the month of uh, a shitload of games the NBL Cup the NBL Cup that's very simple. There we go. Very I've simple got some brand, I've got some yeah. marketing work to do on the brand. There we go. <laughs> um, NBL Cup. Is that something that was, was put in this season purely because of obviously the lack of basketball last year or is that something to sta- it's going to stay? And then also, is the timing of it going to stay the same? Really interesting question. So the, the answer to the first part is the NBL Cup was a result of, of coronavirus and the, at the formative stages of planning, we didn't know whether or not we were going to play a home and going to be able to play a home and away season at all. 
Mm. Um, but at the same time, we knew we couldn't do a complete bubble the way that the NBA had done. It cost them hundreds of millions of dollars and it's just not viable for us. So we were trying to find something sort of in between and staying in the one city at least meant that you minimise a significant part of the risk associated with travel. So there was a time where we were thinking, right, well, that might be all we get to play this this year. Okay, yeah, right. And then things eased <laughs> and the need for the cup dissipated, um, but we remained of the view that it was still a really good insurance policy in case we got to, say, today, where are we, mid-April, um, and borders close again, there's another COVID outbreak when we have to call the competition off. Well, being able to play 36 games in a really short amount of time yeah. would mean that you would have a critical mass of games to be able to say, right, well, that's the end of the season. We might be able to play some finals or maybe we award it to whoever's on top of the table at the time. At least it gave us... Yeah. Um, as things began to evolve, though, the cup got pushed a little bit later than we were anticipating. Ideally, we would have liked to have mitigated the risk of COVID even more by starting the season in the cup. Um, yeah. but, but the um, delays associated with the Australian Open and therefore the venue availability for us meant that we had okay. to actually start the season in home and away for five yeah. rounds and then, and then bring everyone together. So I would think that if we progress with the cup in future years, that we would probably revert to the model of, of ideally having it at the beginning of the season, maybe splitting it over two periods, one at the beginning, one in the middle of the season. Um, and having, having some skin on the game, in the game for the actual season points or, cause I mean, like, I think that I, needs, because I, yeah. I, I mean, um, uh, when it, when I first kind of saw that it was going to happen, particularly after the first few rounds, like all I could think of is what you know what happens if one of the the imports or anyone does does a big injury during this cup and then then they're done for the season. Um, similar to because similar of the impact a, that it has in a concentrated period of time. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's a double edged sword because the fact that it counted for points, but you had so many games played in a short time does mean that the impact of injuries or player unavailability for any reason is massively amplified. Yeah. Um, but also it's what made so many of the games so interesting is because you know that coaches are going to go a hundred percent at every one of those games. I love um, the fact the, uh, I absolutely loved the, the, the winning, the, the winning of each quarter. I mean, I just made it. So, I mean, I think it would have looked a lot different if it hadn't have been that, um, the winning of each quarter, you know, any time there's looking like it's a blowout, I think like any other game of sport or particularly basketball becomes pretty disinteresting towards the end of the, the game when it's just a blowout. But that made it really interesting. I think it almost had a, um, almost had like an NBA feel to it where, you know, typical NBA fan, you know, you can turn the TV on pretty much any day of the week and there's going to be a, a good game of basketball on to watch, which is so such an appealing thing about the NBA. That's something that I loved is knowing that literally every single night I can turn the TV on and there's going to be a game of basketball on. Yeah, um, which well, was, that's which the appeal awesome. for us is, is trying to develop that programmatic viewing behaviour for fans so that mm. they know, right, go to this station, this time I know there's going to be basketball, which is yeah. you know, something that we need to continue to work towards in the longer term. But maybe that, that scoring system for each quarter um, but not counting towards regular season points. Maybe that's the reasonable midway point. Okay. Um, yeah. So that you don't have the necessarily massive implications of injuries, mm -hmm. but at the same time you have people incentivized to continue to play all the way Compete. through till the dying seconds of, of the game. And then I, I won't lie, putting prize money up for grabs obviously made 
um, teams oh, a lot you. more competitive as well. So, yeah. uh, you know, maybe it's a hybrid model where you have, I think a month was too long. A month was a result of coronavirus. Commercially, a month is very, very difficult to do in one city. Um, it's a massive oversupply of basketball yeah. in a short period of time if you're actually trying to sell tickets. As a made-for-TV event, it's fine. Um, but the way we're structured at the moment, we need we need bums on seats and people going through the turnstiles in order to pay for the production cost of putting these things on. So probably a shorter format, probably beginning of the season. Look at that. Um, look at how we keep it competitive in terms of the mix of prize money and points for each quarter. Yeah. Um, that's that's sort of where the thinking is directing us uh, at the moment. Not to say we won't <laughs> we won't revise yeah. that. And we'll probably continue to refine it over the next few years. It's still still very early days. What's the what's the likelihood of having a uh, an all star game imports versus the Aussies? Um, I mean, I think it'd be quite competitive and it'd be super interesting to watch. And I mean, again, it comes down to I guess people risk like teams risking their best players, but you know, dunk competition, three point shootout, like kind of again, just kind of following that path of the NBA and and getting more and more people that may not necessarily be usually be fans of, of basketball excited yeah. to watch watch the weekend um, yeah look the, the carnival atmosphere is what we're really trying to work towards and i think if we were to do something like that it would probably be during the nbl cup yeah um, so that you did really have a celebration a festival of basketball veered away from doing it during this year's cup because one there are a hell of a lot of moving pieces already and a lot of basketball yeah. we were squeezing into a short amount of time and so people were very risk averse in terms of wanting to do things like an all-star game or a dunk comp for precisely the reason you mentioned earlier. If someone gets injured yeah. in, an, in an exhibition type event, it has real implications for them for a significant number of games. Yeah. Um, so definitely something on the radar for the not too distant future. Doesn't necessarily mean imports versus Aussies. Um, there okay. are a whole bunch of different formats that I've been kicking around with, with others. Yeah. You know, the obvious one is East versus West, which doesn't really make sense with us. Uh, it would just be Perth against everyone else, <laughs> um, which is probably how the Wildcats would like it. I mean, take on all comers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> North versus South was a bit of an old NBL okay. model, yeah. which could be interesting. Um, young versus old is one that I'm pretty, yeah, that'd be interesting. pretty keen on. Yeah, yeah, like rookies and first years up against vets yeah. who have played at least 150 games. Yeah, something like that would be cool. Um, uh, indigenous versus non-indigenous. Uh, there's all kinds of different ways you could do it. You could potentially have different all-star formats uh, yeah. every other year. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that'd be awesome. What's um? So just just as we wrap things up, mate. What's uh? What are you kind of most excited about? I guess moving forward. Obviously, we talked before about the the reverse engineering, how to take the league from where it was to where it is now. Now that it is in such a good position, like what's the fine tuning that needs to happen, you think, to continue for it to to move forward like it has been so far without kind of reaching a point where it plateaus? The, the media landscape, the dynamic nature of, of the sports content market at the moment is, is pretty interesting. And um, I think over the next couple of years, uh, we stand to be in a position to capitalise on media rights fees in, in a way that we haven't been able to do before as a sport. Uh, and what that will do for the growth of the league is really significant. Um, uh, I, I would also say the continued evolution of Next Stars. Uh, yeah. it, that's a pretty interesting challenge. Uh, and with every challenge comes opportunity. But you've had the NBA respond by introducing uh, the Ignite 
G League Academy. Um, yeah, you've had the NCAA respond by now allowing players in certain states to commercialize their image. So to try and introduce some money to, to what was previously a purely amateur competition. Yeah. Um, over time elite. So corporates who are now uh, developing their own basketball league to try and respond. So that's a really quickly developing segment as well. Yeah. Um, so, so to see whether or not we're nimble enough to, to continue to capitalize on that opportunity of attracting top tier young talent is, is exciting. Um, the continued role of, of technology uh, is another one that, yeah. that is always of interest to me. I'm sort of a bit of a, a tech nerd and, and um, I think there's a, a lot of blue sky still out there in terms of the role that technology can play in terms of how the game is played, not just how it's consumed. So much of sports tech world at the moment is focused on either high performance, getting that extra 0.1 of a percent out of a player yep. um, or content delivery and, and consumption, you know, the rise and rise of streaming and snackable content. And both of those are very, very cool and we'll continue to follow them closely. Yeah. But there are other ways you can use tech too. I mean, uh, start to get jumping into the world of, uh, jump into the world of NFTs. It's like the Absolutely. NBA and, and all over. Yeah. Everyone wants to know our opinion on NFTs of late. And um, uh, I've done a couple of interviews around that recently. The, the top shots thing and capturing moments is, I think, the tip of the iceberg. And maybe not the sustainable tip either. That might be yeah. the bit that melts away. Yeah. But the opportunity for things like NFTs and the commercialization of the sport, really exciting. But also from a high performance point of view, what about investing in the high performance of referees you know they use clubs spend so much money on getting the extra 0.1 of a percent out of performance of a player yeah um what about tech to assist refs what about tech to assist coaches to get the extra five percent out of a coach that enables them to communicate more efficiently with their players through i don't know google glass or mm. co coaching tools that are going to get that next um that next step change, that next incremental change in performance. Yeah, there's so much. World's room. our oyster. Yeah, world's our, world's our oyster. Jeremy, thanks so much for your time, mate. Um, I've really enjoyed the chat, and I, I'm sure everyone that's tuned in has as well. So, um, a big thank you to you, and, and for everyone who's tuned in. If you've enjoyed today's episode, which I'm sure you have, uh, please do take a screenshot for us, tag us on your Instagram story. We'd love to get your feedback, and um, if you haven't already, get along to a game this season. And um, again, mate, thanks for your time. No, absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's been uh, been good fun. Awesome.